Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The American Meteorological Society has been a collective of meteorologists and a fixture in the professional community since its foundation in 1919. Since then, numerous achievements in the field have taken us through the discovery of the radar, the satellite era, and the constant advancement of atmospheric modeling. The AMS has been there through the technical journey, and since 2004, Dr. Keith Sider has been the executive director of the AMS, and almost 20 years later, he is retiring from the organization. He's joining us today to reflect on his time with the Society. So pleasure to have you, Dr. Keith Sider. Great to be here, Marshall. Hey, thank, thank you so much. Uh, for uh, Keith is a colleague that I've, I've known now for, gosh, I don't even know how long, uh, from some of my earlier days in the field yep. uh, and have worked closely with him in his role at the AMS. So it's really an honor to have, have you on the show, Keith. Uh, there is a standard question that comes right out of the gate that I ask every Weather Geeks guest. I've asked Louis Uccellini this. I recently asked Rick Spinrad this. How'd you become a Weather Geek? <laughs> well, you know, I think uh, like many of us, uh, this goes back to when I was a little kid. Uh, I, um, I was always fascinated with the weather uh, from my earliest memories. Uh, and, and even um, even back in the preschool uh, days, um, uh, there were a couple of books that um, that my older brother and sister read to me that had weather related themes to them and, and it really sparked that interest. And then I grew up in the Midwest in Ohio. Uh, we get terrific thunderstorms there and, um, uh, had a number of tornadoes, uh, when I was young, uh, including the, uh, the original Palm Sunday tornadoes, uh, in, in the sixties, uh, when I was young and that made a big impression on me. Uh, so again, I think it's a story that many of us share, uh, that there either was a particular weather event or a few weather events early in our life that um, uh, really kind of set that spark. So yeah. it's been uh, all I've wanted to do ever since I was little. It's, it's, it's amazing because, you know, I was with a previous uh, podcast episode that we taped before yours. I was speaking with a young man who's on the uh, Florida State University basketball team. And we were just talking about, I mean, the sort of really interesting sort of phenomena that is meteorologists and people in our field and how we have that sort of passion. And it harkens back to sort of really early days. I mean, Keith, you've been around a lot of meteorologists in this field for a long time. Do you think that people in our field, it, there is this sort of, are we wired differently from sort of other professions from your, from your understanding and from your observations? You know, I, I think we are a little bit. Uh, and, uh, and again, I, you know, so many of us uh, have gone into this uh, career path as a passion uh, yeah. rather than uh, as a job. Right. And, and I think you, you and, and that actually makes it wonderful uh, because, um, you know, when we get together uh, as a group or, or of almost any size, uh, we still talk about the weather. <laughs> it's, it's still what we care about. It's still what we're interested in. Uh, but also, um, I think uh, almost without fail, people go into this um, profession because they want to, to help people. Uh, you know, they, they look at what uh, meteorology can do as a service to the community and, and as a benefit to the community. And that, um, that's also very special uh, because it really um, 
uh, brings together people that, that are doing things for reasons that are more than just uh, making a living. Uh, they, they care about what they're doing. And, and I think, um, you know, so many of the folks, uh, especially the people that are, that are actually in forecasting positions, um, you know, just follow every aspect uh, of the forecast, even when they're not on duty. Uh, and, and care so much about whether or not the forecast that they have prepared, uh, you know, makes a difference in people's lives and, and, and ultimately saving lives. Uh, but even on a day-to-day basis, uh, just having that, that sense that what you're doing uh, is making life better for people uh, is a real driving factor for so many of us. Um, and, and the same thing in the research community, um, same thing in, in all aspects of, of the field. Um, there is that, that common thread of, um, you know, so many of us, I've, I've heard many meteorologists say, you know, I would do this even if they didn't pay me. We all need to, to make a living as well. But the fact that, that we have that sense uh, that it's not for the money uh, that we're doing this, but it's really for the passion we have for the science, for the, uh, for, for the way that, that um, you know, the, the, the things that we do can help people. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And let me give you a little bit of um, who Dr. Keith Sider is. Uh, he has a BS in meteorology from Penn State University and a PhD in geophysical sciences from the University of Chicago. Uh, he's been the executive director of the American Meteorological Society, better known as AMS, since 2004. Uh, and he was deputy executive director from 1998 to 2004. And before joining the AMS, he was on the faculty at the University of um, Massachusetts at Lowell. He's a fellow of the American Meteorological Society and a fellow of the Royal Meteorological Society as well. So highly regarded colleague in the field, uh, weather, climate and water enterprise. You've held a position that honestly, not too many people have held as the executive director of the AMS. I think I've known most of them or a good number of them over the span of my my lifetime. So give us one, you know, just a quick, you know, Reader's Digest 101 to our listeners of, who may not be familiar with what AMS is. And then I'm really interested in your perspective on how AMS has evolved over your time uh, from the start of the director to now. Sure. And AMS is the uh, it's, it's the premier scientific and professional society uh, that serves the meteorological community. Uh, and so, um, you know, sometimes when I'm talking to people who may not have a good sense of what that means, uh, I say that we're sort of like the American Medical Association is for doctors. We are for meteorologists and for people in the related fields. There's not just meteorology, but also physical oceanography, hydrology, uh, some folks that are working in the social sciences that, that, that um, intersect with our field uh, are part of AMS. We really are they're there to serve that community. Uh, which means we try to, well, we, we publish journals, uh, we hold scientific conferences, we try to make sure that the research that's being done is disseminated, but we also support the, the people who are doing the actual applications of that work. And so the forecasters, uh, the, um, you know, the people that are building the satellites uh, that, that uh, give us the weather data that we need uh, and the radars and all those other kinds of things that, uh, that are part of that entire enterprise. Uh, are part of the AMS, and, and our our uh, mission is really to make sure that they are successful. Uh, ultimately, that that success then benefits the broader community and and, and the broader society. Um, but we really do focus uh, quite heavily on on the professionals that are in the field, 
And more recently, we've started to branch out and, and, and do more for the, uh, for the non-professionals, for people that, that have, whether as a hobby or as, or as an enthusiast uh, activity. Um, and so we are, are kind of expanding in that, uh, in that area. But, but our focus for the last 100 years, a little over 100 years now, uh, has really been on serving the professionals that are working in that field. Yeah. And I mean, you, you, you may be familiar as just a casual listener, because I know we have people that listen to weather geeks that aren't in the field, but just kind of want to peek in on what we're doing in this field. I mean, when you see your local television meteorologist, they may have the certified broadcast meteorology certification from the AMS, or you may have a certified consulting meteorologist that has done work for you in forensics. So I think those are sort of some of the front ways that many people are familiar with the AMS, but it's definitely a much broader organization than just the television meteorology community, which is certainly a vital part of our community uh, as as well. Um, how, how, how have you seen, I mean, you mentioned a little bit how the society's mission has changed. And I, I always felt like AMS is a little bit different than some professional or science societies that many people may be familiar with, because you do have these journals that you publish. Mm-hmm. Uh, as this podcast is probably airing, we're probably going right into the AMS annual meeting in Houston. Um, so you have this really traditional science society function, but you also have the certification and professional mm-hmm. society function that maybe uh, people don't uh, maybe uh, sort of resonate with, perhaps like some other organizations. Um, what have been some of the biggest changes and challenges that you've seen over your career as the executive director of the AMS? Because Keith has announced his retirement. It's going to be a big loss for the society and for uh, our community at large. But, you know, I, I know Keith's been at it this for a while, so it, he, he deserves a break for sure. Um, <laughs> but over that time, what do you say are the biggest challenges, hurdles or even opportunities have you seen over that time frame? Well, yeah, and there've been there've been several. Uh, you know, the the world has been changing rapidly, and and all the electronic uh, activities, um, you know, uh, electronic publishing, uh, doing meetings differently, uh, being able to have these kinds of conversations over Zoom, uh, all of those kinds of things have been things that 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 have been developing over a recent uh, decade or so. Uh, and we've tried to uh, stay on top of those things and, and be able to deliver our science in new ways and different ways. And so, so that, um, uh, that aspect of uh, taking advantage of the newer technologies to, uh, to serve the science better certainly has been at the forefront of what AMS has been doing. Uh, in terms of challenges, uh, you know, there are some that are, that are much um, uh, probably not very well known outside of our community uh, that have been uh, really important aspects of what AMS is about, though. Um, in the, the 80s and, and 90s, uh, there was a growing sense of tension uh, between the private sector and the government uh, uh, weather providers like the National Weather Service um, in terms of, of kind of understanding where the boundaries were, uh, what types of things were being done by the private sector, what types of things would be done by the National Weather Service, uh, how do those things not go into conflict with each other, uh, and, and it got bad enough uh, that um, uh, in the early 2000s, around 2001 or 2002, there was a, a sense that, that something had to be done. Uh, and a National Academy study was done uh, called the Fair Weather Report uh, that looked at how to, to decrease that tension. Uh, and one of the recommendations coming out of that report was uh, specific to the AMS, that the AMS should provide a venue for uh bringing together uh, people from those different uh, sectors within the community so that they could learn to work well together. 
Uh, and I think that has been uh, both, it was a terrific challenge, but also a terrific success story uh, for AMS that we developed a commission that would, uh, who had a, its sole function was to bring together the leaders from private sector companies, from the National Weather Service and other government agencies, uh, and people from the academic community, uh, and really sort of hash out uh, how do we take all the things that we're doing uh, and, and do them in ways so that each of those uh, individual components can really play to their strengths uh, and do that in ways that are the most beneficial to the public. Um, and, and the early discussions uh, around 2004, 2005 uh, were really contentious. Uh, it was, uh, those were tough discussions. We, we had, uh, I mean, literally we were in rooms and people were screaming at each other. Uh, and, and so there was just a lot of animosity, uh, where each, uh, group felt that the others didn't understand them, didn't, um, uh, uh you know, didn't recognize the, the constraints under which they were operating, uh, and, and what they had to do to be successful within their, uh, particular, uh, sliver of, of that, uh, broader pie. Um, but through those continuing discussions and, and the willingness of people to continue to keep coming together and having those tough discussions, uh, we eventually got to the point where after a few years of those kinds of, of meetings, um, a common ground started to, to form. And, and not only did we get to a place where the tension was lowered, um, but we actually got to a whole new place uh, where uh, collaboration uh, was was not just um, uh, a, a dream of, of things, but was an actual reality. Uh, and the group started working together better and um, and really uh, recognizing truly the unique strengths that each of them bring to that process. So that now uh, I think the, the the government agencies, the private sector, and in the academic communities uh, work together. Uh, better than they ever have, uh, and and really, again, that's that's all to the benefit of the public um, because it means that the, the forecasts are better, the disseminations of those forecasts are better, the preparation for using that forecast well uh, is better than it's ever been. All of those things really are a result of of people being willing to come together and really kind of just have those difficult discussions, and and AMS played a key role in that. Uh, and I don't think it would have happened without an organization like AMS stepping in and just using its power to pull people together uh, in a way that 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 you know pretty much put them all in a room, lock the doors, and 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 work it out. <laughs> it's the same kind of thing you do sometimes with your kids, right? When they're arguing, you say, "Look, you know, <laughs> go sit on the bench, and, and neither of you get to get up until you've worked out something so that you can work together." Uh, and and it was that kind of a discussion. So it was. Um, uh, very challenging uh, at the time. Uh, and it's not over yet. It continues to be a challenge because as the new technologies come about and, and uh, you know, we're trying to utilize those well, there's, there continues to be this, this constant sense of, of what should the government be doing? What should the private sector be doing? How can the academic community feed into those processes in ways that both of them can be successful? All of those kinds of things are continuing discussions, um, but AMS continues to play a really important role in, in making sure that those discussions happen. That is, is one of those things that's so far behind the, the, the curtain uh, for the general public that they don't realize uh, how important those kinds of things are. Uh, and they don't realize that an organization like AMS is, is really responsible for making sure they happen. 
Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Dr. Keith Sider, the uh, outgoing, uh, I guess, AMS executive director, longtime executive director, has had his finger on the pulse of uh, the weather, climate, and related community for so long. And so we we wanted to have him on to just kind of pick his brain, reflect on many things. And you heard his last answer just talking about the role that AMS plays in a lot of different areas like that. I mean, much of our, I'm at the University of Georgia, much of the curriculum that we teach for uh, future meteorologists and climate scientists, that curriculum is set and defined in part by the AMS standards. Uh, You heard me mention the broadcast and CCM certified consulting meteorologists. Uh, AMS has a standard definition for who and what meteorologists are, has an education and policy program that is affecting change across the landscape as well. So there are so many ways that AMS is uh, um, really affecting your lives that you may not know about. Another sort of interesting challenge that I've watched over the years in terms of how AMS has evolved is how it's dealt with climate change, Keith. I remember as president, I mean, we had just come out with a new climate change statement. Everyone, you know, AMS is a a membership organization of various perspectives and, and viewpoints. I think we can't really deny what's going on with climate change right now, but there's been a, a process or an evolution of how that that has even sort of um, sort of propagated within the society. Re- reflect on that for a moment. Sure. Uh, yeah. And, and that's it's also been something that's been an interesting part of, of being in my position uh, over the last uh, couple of decades at AMS, uh, really seeing that evolution of uh of kind of the acceptance within the community of what is happening with the climate and how that is changing and how humans are responsible for it. Um, you know, I think the scientific community, uh, the, the research community was was um, uh, on top of that very early. Uh, it was a, a slower process to get um, uh, other aspects of our community to really understand that uh, more fully, uh, to really accept uh, what the science was saying more fully. Uh, and, and there still are, are um, uh, some folks who are not, um, you know, not in, in line with uh, some of the, um, you know, kind of uh, overarching international agreements and some of those sorts of things. Uh, and it's a difficult problem because it, it uh, while the science uh, really has become very, very clear uh, and the scientific ev- evidence is just absolutely overwhelming, um, how you deal with climate change and what has to happen for us to address that uh, gets into policy issues uh, and policy issues are based on values. Uh, and, and when you have something that's based on values, uh, then it becomes harder uh, for people to uh, set aside values that they may have um, in order to address something that, that scientifically is very clear. Uh, and so I think what we've what we've come to recognize more fully is that uh, just making the, the clear scientific evidential argument uh, isn't sufficient. Uh, you really have to go beyond that. You have to uh, have people uh, help people understand 
uh, how regardless of their values, uh, regardless of, of the uh, preconceived notions that they have for, for what they would like to see happen in the world, um, you know, we, we really have to follow the science uh, and we really have to do things based on the science. Um, and, and so, again, it's been a, a fascinating process for me uh, to, to be in a position to watch all of this unfold, to watch the, the discussions about it unfold uh, and, and really um, uh, kind of see that evolution of, of people's thought processes. Um, but I think we've gone from a position where people tried to um, uh, not believe the science because the science conflicted with with the with the values that they wanted to hold uh, to really accepting the science and now wrestling with um, uh, given the science uh, how do I maintain uh, the kind of lifestyle I want to have and still be able to address uh, what we know is a really significant problem uh, for our our world so so I, I think I think the the discussion has changed pretty dramatically. Uh, and, and that's been, I think, a very positive thing, but we still have an awful long way to go, uh, clearly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, before I kind of dive into more of the sort of Keith's perspective on the broader weather, climate, water enterprise, I, I want to kind of do a slight detour and geek out with Keith a second. Keith, what was your your Ph.D. work on? I mean, what was your sort of science background in terms of what you did your science work on? I, I worked on thunderstorms, uh, and so the uh, my, my PhD research really was focusing on how supercell thunderstorms, the, the long-lived uh, thunderstorms, uh, how they can be arranged uh, internally uh, in ways that allow them to extract the energy that the atmosphere has uh, and do that in a sustainable process that, that allows them to, to, to do that for hours and hours. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of the afternoon shower type thing, the, those, those uh, clouds develop um, as the, the rain starts forming them and forms a downdraft that essentially kills the, the, the storm. So the storm kind of uh, blossoms up uh, and, and sort of kills itself in some sense. Supercell storms uh, develop an internal structure uh, that allows the updraft to sort of wrap around or, or, or not conflict with the downdraft so that the two can reinforce each other uh, and so that they actually can can become very efficient at um, uh, pulling in the warm, moist air, extracting the energy from that, uh, using uh, that to help propagate forward. Uh, all of those kinds of things fit together in a, in a, a structure that, uh, that allows it to be long-lived. Uh, yeah. And I was working on, on developing how that happens, how, how it is that, that a storm can uh, especially in its early initial stages, uh, develop that kind of an internal structure uh, so that once it gets developed, it becomes a self-reinforcing one rather than one that, um, you know, that has sort of a, a, a very short lifetime just because, because the internal structure sort of, sort of uh, kills the, the storm itself as it's, as it's progressing. Yeah, I, I took the liberty to ask that question because I've known Keith a long time and I don't think I've ever asked him that question. So that was just really curious uh, well, about think, that. And, and, and yeah. this is you know, my, my contribution to that to that very complex problem was a tiny one, um, but it was uh, it was a fascinating uh, uh, project. And and, uh, uh, and I still I mean, I've always loved thunderstorms. I still love thunderstorms. Um, uh, it's uh, that's just part of my DNA, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I just saw Keith Sider take a swig of that, his Diet Coke. If you know Keith, you know that it's usually not a, a Diet Coke can far away from him. That's something I've noticed over the years. It's really kind of a reflection to see that. Uh, you know, Keith, you know, we're in an interesting time in weather climate. I mean, we've got the emergence of artificial intelligence. As you noted earlier, there's all kinds of technologies. We've got dual polarization radar. We've got community modeling now with the Epic and so forth. Uh I mean, as you you sit back, I mean, you've you've been in AMS and meet, annual meetings, you've been at specialty meetings. So you, I, I think as you as much as anyone has a lay of the landscape of our community and our field as much as anyone. What are the things that catch your eye as we sit here in 2021 going into 22 going forward in the next zero to 10 years? What do you think the things are going to be that move the needle in our field or significantly impact? how we operate or think as a community? Well, I, I think you, you highlighted uh, some of the key ones. Uh, I think artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, is an incredible tool uh, that, is, uh, that we're really just learning to do better uh, with, uh, that we're just learning to utilize in, in ways that are going to be more and more effective over time. Um, you know, um, meteorology is sort of the original big data uh, uh, kind of, of science uh, field. Uh, we generate enormous uh, volumes of data, uh, much more than, than uh, any human can, in, can decipher or ingest, uh, and actually much more than, than we can utilize even in the computer models. Uh, and so um, being able to uh, take advantage of artificial portions of that data we should be paying more attention to and which portions of that data we don't have to be paying as much attention to, I think is going to become a more and more uh, important process. Uh, you mentioned EPIC. Um, you, know, you know, I think, I think many fields have learned uh, that, that rapid progress uh, happens as you develop platforms that allow many people to come together and, and, and as as collectives in a sense uh, move things forward um, you know the the gaming community uh, has been doing that for a long time the um, you know the the computer science folks that that have uh, open source code data uh, open source code and data all of those sorts of things um, uh, you know you see you see progress in those areas because uh, when people can get into the the, the kind of the nuts and bolts of how something gets done and contribute, even if it's just a tiny piece uh, of a very big problem. Uh, if you have lots of people doing that, uh, you can make progress quickly. Uh, and so I think the more we can uh, have these sort of community driven um, uh, modeling and, 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 and other aspects, um, we're going to see progress happen very, very quickly. It makes it an ex super exciting um, a field to be going into now because of that. Uh, the other piece of it, though, that I think um, 
that I really want to highlight uh, is the social science uh, component. Uh, you know, it's really just been within the last uh, handful of years, uh, I think, that uh, that there's been a, an organized attempt uh, to bring uh, the social scientists into our community. Uh, for, for so many years, we've talked about, boy, if we could just make the perfect forecast, uh, everything would be great. Uh, people would do the right thing. We would save lives. We would save property. Uh, wouldn't that be wonderful? And our forecast have gotten better and better and better. Uh, and what we found uh, as the forecast got better uh, is that we didn't, you know, we gave people very good forecasts and they didn't do the right things. They didn't, they didn't get out of the way. They didn't uh, protect things in ways they should have. Um, and, and I think for many of us in the neurologic community, uh, that was sort of a, uh, a wake-up call. Uh, we're saying, wow, you know, we gave you this great forecast for this hurricane. We were dead on uh, and still a bunch of people died. Uh, or a bunch of people were stranded, or, or any of those kinds of things. Uh, how could that happen? Uh, and, and the way it happens is, is by, by people not necessarily knowing what to do or how to do it, not necessarily knowing who they can trust or, or, or how the message uh, gets to them in, in ways that they understand. Um, and those are all social science issues. So bringing in people that have expertise in uh, translating complicated scientific information uh, into actionable um, kind of directives uh, for, for people to, to take advantage of, um, I think is going to be uh, another step function up in, in terms of our ability to protect lives uh, and, and really uh, keep people out of harm's way uh, in, in ways that, that, that we always thought was just a matter of not having a good enough forecast. Um, so, so I think I think that's the other area where I, I see uh, enormous potential, uh, and it's a and it's a, a complicated one, though, in, in that we have to be marrying people with really good scientific expertise in our field uh, with people that have equally good and equally valuable expertise in the social sciences, and be able to blend those together in ways that um, you know that really help us. Uh, take that that very good forecast and and make sure that people are doing the things that will uh, that will protect them. Yeah, that, that, I, you you nail you nail some of the things that I know. I'm I'm talking to many of our students about at the University of Georgia in terms of even the way we've constructed our program <clears throat> is very much differently than how I came up through a program at the Florida State mm -hmm. University in terms of the things that. Uh, the students have to learn about. I mean, of course, they have to learn about all the physical and dynamic meteorology and so forth. But, you know, the world of big data and GIS and psychology and communication, social sciences is very much in the mix of what I believe the fourth, uh, the future of, of our field looks like in terms of training, training future professionals. Uh, what's next for Dr. Keith Sider? I mean, I mean, AMS has been a part of your DNA for a long time and now you're retiring. So what's what's next? Yeah, so you know, it's uh, I'm working on that. Um, uh, you know, I, I started my career uh, in a faculty position at university. You mentioned that uh, I loved that position. I loved that work, uh, and I've missed it uh, ever since I've been out of the university. Uh, so I really am thinking that uh, sort of the final stage of my career uh, it will be to to move back into a university setting. Uh, back into a situation where I can get into the classroom and, and, and teach, uh, work with students, uh, really help um, 
uh, hopefully bring bring some of the, the things that I have learned uh, over the last couple of decades um, uh, here at AMS in terms of how our community works and, and the way the different uh, pieces of it fit together. Uh, hopefully bring that to, um, you know, to a university setting that, that um, uh, allows me to, to sort of pass that on uh, yeah. and, and help students, uh, uh, you know, go into their careers and be successful in their careers. Uh, and, and again, do uh, contribute in a different way, but uh, in a way that I, that I uh, have always been passionate about, uh, which is really uh, supporting the next generation of scientists. Yeah. And I think for anyone listening out there that, that he would be an amazing get. Uh, it, it would be a coup for your university or college if uh, you could land Dr. Keith Sider. So I would certainly uh, affirm and support that, uh, that, um, that coup. In fact, I mean, I was, I think uh, Keith, I think I may have even hinted at or possibly, hey, you want to come down to the University of Georgia? I, mean, I think I actually floated that in an email one time. You did mention that to me. At I, I, yeah, because I, I know, <laughs> I, that, I, know his, I know his value and I know, know what he brings to the table. So, um, Last question. I mean, you're sitting in that historic room that I see in the backdrop there that I've, I think I've been in. Many times. I think it's the, are you at AMS right now? I think. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah, I thought I recognized the room. Yeah. I thought, I thought you would like the, uh, this is background. It's also a very quiet room. It's yeah, a, absolutely. It's, it's, I've so been in that room. The, the noise of the traffic going in front uh, that I do in my regular office. Yeah, absolutely. His, historic, historic location. If you ever visit, visit Boston, uh, 45 Beacon Street, it's, well, it's a lot of history to the AMS headquarters location, but you're sitting in that room with your successor. What's one piece of advice that you tell him or her? Well, you know, I I, uh, I think the real key here is that uh, that our community is just a very special one. Uh, you know, the uh, AMS uh, benefits from uh, the work of literally thousands of volunteers uh, within the community, and and you're a great example of that. Uh, you served as president, but you served in lots of other ways, and continue to serve uh, in lots of ways as a volunteer. Uh, because you care about the community, because you care about the things that AMS is doing, you know, and you recognize the importance of the things that AMS is doing. Um, and I think any anybody in my position uh, that that's uh, that's uh, leading this organization um, always has to keep as the as the, the absolute primary first and foremost uh, aspect of that is that uh, we're here serving this community, but we are served by this community. Uh, and, and so really it's the volunteers and, and the community itself uh, that drives AMS. We are a membership organization and, and AMS is its members. Uh, it's not the staff, it's not this building. Uh, it, it really is the membership that is AMS uh, and, and what makes AMS wonderful and, and incredibly uh, effective at the things it does is that community. It's, it's that community of volunteers. So it's just, um, uh, it, and I think uh, it, it's a humbling thing uh, to to be in a, able to be in a position uh, where you can work with people like you and and the thousands of other folks uh, like you that um, uh, that give your precious time uh, and and you don't have much time to give and yet you do generously all the time uh, and and so many people like that uh, so it, it's humbling I get paid to 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 work with people that are giving so much of their time for free. Uh, and and um, you never want to forget uh, that they're doing that because um, uh, because that is is the core of what AMS is all about. Yeah. Well, we have to really end it there. But on behalf of everyone that I've worked with and have worked with you at the AMS, we just want to thank you for your service to our community, to the AMS and to the world, because 
candidly, what AMS deals with is global. Uh, it's based in Boston and it's the American Meteorological Society. But it's an international footprint on, on what we do and what you've done. And so I want to thank you on behalf of all of our the ex- former presidents of the AMS, as the members and just the Weather Channel and everyone that I know that you've had ties to. Uh, before I get out of here and give you the last word, it's time for the Geek of the Week. Uh, we like to highlight a scientist superstar or a geologist or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Nicolette Zangara. Nicolette is a meteorology student at the University of Florida and a forecaster at TV20 News. Growing up, her grandfather would show her books on storms, cloud types, and other weather phenomena. She's been hooked on weather ever since. I I understand completely. Uh, If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Keith, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Great. It was great to be here, Marshall, and thank you for the opportunity. Yep. And I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. Bye.